This episode is sponsored by MJ's Progress Not Perfection Meeting Center Association. We are in our meeting center where we do all these meetings for mental health and addiction. I can do this podcast anywhere. I can do this at home. I can do this in a closet. I can do this in a basement. It doesn't matter. All I need is somebody else to talk to about addiction and recovery. What I can't do from anywhere is help people with their addiction and their mental health problems. So if you can help out, you know, we do have a Venmo, we have a Cash App, we have a PayPal, we have an address you can send a check to. And, you know, all the money that gets donated goes towards rent, goes towards keeping the lights on, and goes towards keeping the internet on. So please, you know, if you can get five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, it doesn't matter. Anything you can is so appreciated. If you are a local business, if you're a national business, whatever, and you want to be a part of what we're doing, you know, you can reach out to me and we can talk about how you can be a sponsor. But I'll let you get back to the episode. Good show, Larry. Glad to be here. And um, just to give the audience a little background, you and I met in a night school back in the day when um, I first started going to college when I was 19 up in Massachusetts and I was going to Quincy and we met. And I knew you were in the program, like... I knew that you, you know what I mean? You worked a program of some sort. You kind of mentioned it here and there in passing. I was well, you know, into my drinking and about the not even into my using yet when we met. But still, we were always friends on Facebook and I would see you post stuff and it would always hit me. And, you know, recently when I started this podcast, I have a new Facebook now. So when you're not in my contacts, we're just Facebook buddies from years ago from college. Mm -hmm. And um, I said to my wife, I got to get a hold of Larry. He was in my classes, and him and I, we were buddies. We were, like, in six classes together, and he always had good stuff to talk about. I liked what he posted about, you know, his program before. I got to find him, and then here we are. You know, I found you, and we got the link up in chat, which is cool. Because um, how much t- how much time do you have now, Larry? A little over 25 years. Uh, July 6th of 1996 is my clean date, so... What's that? Uh, when did November? So, uh, yeah, 25, 25 years. 25 and change. Yeah, that's amazing, man. Like, 25 long years. So, because I, I met you then, I guess you were 10 years in. You know, you had just probably, you had just about to hit, you had just hit nine years then when we met. It was mm-hmm. 2005 when I went to school and we met my first semester. So, yeah, you just hit nine years. So, that's a crazy journey, man. Um, now, what do you, what was your drug of choice back in the day? Well, uh, 10, 11, 12 years old, I began to drink to get drunk. Um, so alcohol was my first drug. And um, it was consistently right till I was 21. Um, I tried almost everything once at that point. In other words, everything that was offered to me at that time, which would be, I, I had sniffed glue, so I didn't done inhalants. I, I, I actually uh, enjoyed mescaline for about my my was my first year home from the Marines. So for about a year, I liked mescaline and supply just dried up and I never chased it. Um, but uh, I switched to uh, cocaine as a predominant drug of choice at 21. And that led to my first uh, treatment center at age 29, 1987. Um, oh, yeah. My- so this is when Coke was Coke too then. Like, oh, this yeah. This is like 80s. And plus, not to give too much away, but like, you lived in a state where the biggest cocaine kingpin traveler was oh, coming. Yeah, Mr. George Y. Yeah, I yep. know. I and, knew what, dealt with yeah, and dealt with him directly. 
Yeah, I, I was going to say, because he was coming into, you know, town often. Weymouth isn't that far, you know what yep. I mean? When you're, when I you're South Shore. And I was living in Quincy during oh, that yeah. period. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're in the thick of Weymouth then, right where his hometown was. Yeah. Damn, I didn't even put two and two together until you said that, and then it all hit. And I was like, oh, I know where that was. That was that pure Colombian. I'm not surprised oh, yeah. you ended up in treatment at 29, man. <laughs> so well, I, what was it that led you to treatment, though? Was, I, I snorted exclusively for about six of those eight years. And then my last landlord in Quincy, long story short, he was uh, um, like a head of the pipe fitters union or something. And he had some money, you know, he, he, he invested his hard earned money well and owned properties. But he owned two brick apartment buildings, probably like 30 some odd units. Long story short, me and my little brother lived there together, and we were, you know, uh, low-level low dealers. We dealt to our friends and whatnot, but we had a scale and everything behind a bar, and it just sat there on the shelf. We never expected anyone to come in with a key behind the bar, but we had some sort of maintenance problem or whatever, and thank God it was him that came in, not a subordinate. He saw the cocaine, and the next time I saw him, he asked, you know, where I was getting my coke because he thought he could get me better. Long story short, he yeah. another dealer. But being a pipe fitter, he, he also had a blowtorch and he taught me how to freebase. So, uh, yeah, they know I, some tricks with that flame. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that just began a complete downward spiral. I was married. I had uh, two, three children at that point, one from a, a prior marriage. I was married and divorced once before I was 22. And then I was married again by the time I was like 25. My mother's advice to me with marriage was don't get married until you're at least 25. However, she died when I was 16. So I kind of forgot about that in the height of my neediness and, you know, needing yeah. to have, always in codependent relationships. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, your mom passes in your teenage years. It's, it's not, you know, that surprising that you find yourself trying to find companionship and relationships to find somebody else you know what i mean in your life that way it's you know it's a textbook you're you're a smart enough guy now it's textbook you know so mm -hmm. and it was the first marriage 22 was that anything to do with your drinking at the time um it was more immaturity she was as big if not a bigger drinker than me uh, she just passed away a few years ago when we stayed friends over the years she was my mm -hmm. high school sweetheart i got her pregnant we were always on again oh i see that okay that I one makes more sense leave then. one weekend got her pregnant yeah. My daughter was born three weeks before my enlistment in the Marines ended, uh, so she was born on the, at the base at Camp Lejeune, and I, um, you know, as soon as we got home, we lived in Rockland, Mass, and um, it was just patty on, you know, and uh, I thought she was a little promiscuous. She used a little more than me. She used marijuana heavily um, since her teen years and drank heavily. So when she would smoke pot, she was really kind of flirty and um, and whatnot. It was my own insecurity, really. Eventually, I just accused her of cheating. I don't know if she ever was. And I left without any proof after about four months of being home. And uh, that's That's, That one sounds about more right then, the whole high school sweetheart thing. And, you know, you come back and you're in the military, you know. Um, but the 25 one, you know, that one has to do with coke, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. It, my bottom, the, the day before I went to treatment, here's how my bottom was. Now, I should have had many, many other bottoms through active addiction. I, I talk about it sometimes. I had three near-death experiences before I was 19. And to that point, keep in mind, I had only used alcohol for the most yeah. part. 
Yeah. So alcohol at 15 got me hit over the head with a full beer bottle and a, a fist fight that, you know, when you, when the guy's losing, he looks for weapons. Yeah. He smashed me over the head with a full beer bottle right in my own driveway. I was uh, babysit my little brother. Uh, a year later, I got my license and I was in a head-on collision in a 66 Impala convertible with that first wife in the passenger seat, uh, her her brother in the right rear seat and one of our mutual friends, Dan Mitchell, in the rear seat. And his name will come up again with the next near-death experience. But long story short, I had my license uh, two months. It was 10 days before my mother would die. I had uh, a head-on collision in Randolph with another 66 Impala, except it was a hard top. Um, I got hit in the, uh, in the face with the hood of the car and the steering wheel snapped against my chest and whatnot. I had these teeth knocked out. I got these scars from it, this scar, et cetera. I've always my, wondered about that scar. Okay. <laughs> my poor uh, late ex-wife uh, got pinned under the dashboard, chipped her teeth, had to wear a neck brace and a knee brace. Her brother, none of us had seatbelts on. Um, wasn't even a thing then. Um, Probably a good thing the cars were made the way they, they were made in the 60s. Mm-hmm. An accident like that will kill you. Oh the yeah. The cars, where the cars are made, mm-hmm. and back in the day, the way the cars were made, you were lucky that the cars were made that way. They were heavy duty. Obviously, you know, I wasn't even around for it. I just know what I've been told. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think any other car these days, all for you. Like that's that's it's crazy to think about it that way. You know. I agree. So uh, her brother got ejected from the seat behind me. And um, he caught his right ear on the fly window of the driver door, and it just ripped down here, ripped a big cut down the side of his ear and neck. He had 90 stitches down there. Um, Our friend Dan Mitchell on the passenger side, he also got ejected across the street into what was called a Scott gas station. And all he had for damage was hundreds of little glass shards in his head and whatnot and some road rash from uh, tumbling and rolling into the gas station. But all four of us went to separate local hospitals, and all four of us were back out drinking together the next night. I'm not not surprised by night two. You know, night, I'm not even surprised by that night two. And they, the way they handled things back in the day, it just, there, that's, that's why we had the rules that we have now, the laws that we have now, and the things in place, you know, for drinking and driving that we have now, especially for teenagers and stuff like that. When you get called <laughs> once, it's not a slap on the wrist anymore. You I know, didn't even be- know you I from that. And that that's what I mean. Yeah. I, you know, they didn't come to the hospital back then. They didn't breathalyze you back then. If there was a fatality, they might draw your blood in the hospital before that was, a, you know, there was a law against that, like the mm-hmm. HIPAA privacy and everything. Yeah. Uh, and not giving permission to have your blood drawn and so on. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, I've had a friend, you know, um, he, it was Christmas Eve in 2011, and him and our other best friend were driving back to his house in the middle of the night, and he was sober. He wasn't drinking because he was going to be driving. Our other friend was smashed, you know, because he wasn't drinking. Mm-hmm. And it was on a back road in Jersey, and next thing he knew, he woke up in the hospital. He, mm. you know, turns out he went head-on collision with a guy that was a blackjack dealer in Atlantic city. They don't know what happened because they blacked out from the pain in the accident. That guy passed away, unfortunately. And my friend Vinny woke up in a hospital bed handcuffed to it. And, you know, he was sober, but they smelled alcohol in the car because of our friend. 
So mm-hmm. they immediately assumed it was him, didn't even, you know, and they just took him to the hospital and arrested him in there. And he ended up doing six months for vehicular manslaughter, even though he was sober, because our, our other friend couldn't take the stand for whatever reason to talk about it. So he had to mm-hmm. just, you know, but still, man, you know, that just I've seen it happen. That's what I mean. I've seen it happen the other way around where it didn't work out. I got so, a letter. Yeah, so I'm on the move. I'll no, stay that's with- fine. Yeah, you're good. To, yeah, you're good to go. So. You're out drinking the next night, and you said his name was going to come up again. Was that the next one before 19? Yes, sir. Um, so fast forward, I'm in the Marine Corps. I'm homesick. Um, I'm on again, off again with the same girl. And um, But, you know, I just came home a lot be, to party with my friends, you know, as if, you know, Marines didn't party. But, uh, you know, I was more of a – it was my ego, right? I, I was I was a big shot up here. You know, my friends love to go out and get rowdy, you know, together. And down there, you know, all Marines are rowdy. You know, I didn't stick out in the crowd. So it fed my ego to come home. And I'd leave Friday right after work, like 4.30, 5 o'clock, 13-hour drive uh, home. Get home Saturday morning to my, my the house I grew up in. My mother was past. You know, my, my dad my little brother lived there. Uh, I would just crash, get up in time to party Saturday night, party all Saturday night into Sunday morning many times and then get a couple hours sleep Sunday and try to leave by noon to get back to base by midnight and get a night's sleep for work, you know, all to party with my friends from Camp Lejeune, North Carolina to Randolph, Mass. But anyway, Danny Mitchell had joined, he was a year ahead of me in high school uh, and he had joined the army um, right after that car accident, pretty much. And he had been off in Germany doing, uh, I don't know, three or four, two, three, four years over there. He was an MP. And I had heard through letter, you keep in mind, all we had then is dial phones and letter. Yeah. I heard that he was coming home for two weeks leave before his next assignment. He was coming home from Germany. And me and this other Marine, Billy D'Amato, who I partied with, he was from Bill Ricca. A lot of times he would drive home with me. This particular weekend, he came home with me, but he wasn't going to Bill Ricca. He wanted to hang out and... um we picked up Danny at 7 a.m. on Saturday morning. Uh, he was a big Irish drinker and, um, you know, into his Irish heritage. His dad was directly from Ireland. He was a Quincy cop, Danny's dad. We went to the Blarney Stone in Dorchester and began drinking at 8 a.m. That bar opened. And I drank tequila for about the third or fourth time in my life. And every time I drank tequila, blood was drawn somehow, whether it be from me punching somebody else or someone punching me or whatever. And uh, we drank all day. It was about 6, 7 p.m. Uh, back then in Randolph, you, you, had, you could take a bus to Ashmont Station. And then you could take the red line up to the Blarney Stone. Braintree didn't exist at that time, the Braintree Tea. So um, long story short, we drank all day. And we walked back from the Blarney Stone to Ashmont Station, just kind of ragging on people and pushing each other around and, you know, being fun drunks like we thought we were. And uh, we got to Ashmont Station. There's a package store and a bar right next to each other across from the station at that time. I went into the package store to get a six-pack for the bus ride home, which was about 15 minutes, 20 minutes. You know, two beers each for me, Danny and um, mm-hmm. Billy. And uh, Danny is a whiskey drinker. He went into this Irish bar next door to have a couple of shots while I went in the packy. Billy just sat out on the steps of the packy. I wasn't in there two minutes. And... Um, Billy come running in. My nickname is Hiltsey. And he says, Hiltsey, you got to come. Hack, that's Danny's nickname. Hack's getting the shit beat out of him. 
So I ran out there, and sure enough, the seven or eight guys just kicking him, punching him, throwing shit at him, beating the fuck out of him. Because, you know, he, he was rowdy and cocky and probably said the wrong thing. He was he was also a big bigot. and uh, But anyway, it was all, you know, white, long-haired men beating on him. So whatever he said ticked them off. And I jumped into the fray. And uh, next thing you know, uh, I hear a scream from behind. Well, first I heard a bottle smash, and then I heard a scream. Um, and I felt a little warmth running down my neck. It just, you know, I wasn't feeling too much by that point. I didn't feel pain. Yeah, you don't yeah. feel the pain. You know, the adrenaline's way too high. Once once you go running into a pile, I ran into one of those piles, you know, to help someone. <laughs> you don't, once you start running, you don't feel a thing until when, you know, hours later or minutes later. But the mm-hmm. adrenaline rush that you get, you really, you can get hit in the face as hard as you, as that person wants or can. You're not going to feel it. You'll feel it, but not right then. So what did you feel eventually? Well, I, I, I honestly never felt a lot of pain from this incident, uh, you know, that I remember anyway. Um, but the scream said, oh, my God, you cut him wide open. And what had happened was the guy, he, it was a broken Heineken bottle. I saw it on the ground afterwards. He stabbed me in the neck three times back here in the ear and up here in the head five times total i was stabbed and um i was basically too drunk to go get assistance and i uh, woke up in Kearney hospital the next morning but i actually woke up in a stranger's house and they took me to Kearney hospital i was sobered when they woke me up i had sobered up but how um, old were you and you were 19 i was 19 yeah yep and um so this these it was kids, legal to drink though when you were 19 right yeah, 80, 81 was when they changed the drinking age to 21, I believe. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, yeah, I could drink most anywhere by that point at 18. Um, mass was mass was 21 before it was 18 for a while. And I guess because of the Vietnam War, they lowered it. You know, they couldn't be sending people I, off. Yeah, I think if you were, um, uh, like, enlisted at 18, then you were grandfathered in because if you could go to war, you could buy beer. Like exactly. that was like the thing you could show your military ID and they were going to serve you any anywhere in the world, you know, mm-hmm. basically. But if you show a regular state ID under 21 in mass, they're going to kill you, kick rocks. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, you know, I, I was an addict long before I knew I was an addict. And um, I just, you know, my, my vehicle was different than most at that time. You know, I, I could get as fucked up and as much trouble on alcohol as anyone else could on heroin or coke. Or, yeah. Ever, so so now uh, now you're 29 you're already divorced a few years what is it that's going on that you're like okay it's time for me to check out treatment for the first time because it's not like there's commercials for you know today people can see treatment on commercials on tv late night ads especially people that do coke you know they're seeing late night ads on tv for treatment mm-hmm. you know they're seeing um facebook posts it tiktoks it's everywhere they're seeing there's recovery possible today well, believe it or not 19, 1989 similar in 87 here's how it kind of went 87 down. this wife i had been married to at that time um four or five years and we had two children um so they were two and four at the time and the second of those two children the youngest um he was born March 11th, 1985, and he was born with an encephalocele 
And if you don't know what that is, it's a sack of um, tissue that develops in the womb because when we develop normally, we have a knot at the back of our skull. Everyone has a bump at the back of the bottom of their skull. Mm -hmm. That's a fusion. That knot's a fusion because your skull, I'm told, forms like this, and then it kind of seals in the back. So he had a birth defect where that didn't happen. And as he was developing in the womb, um, and we, you know, we had no, uh, what do you call them, the ultrasounds or anything like that with this particular child, even though we did with his older brother, uh, you know, they, they would probably would have encouraged us to abort uh, this child. But um, anyway, he was born with what looked like two heads because he had this big sack of brain tissue out the back of his head. And he had to go into emergency surgery immediately at Floating Hospital in Boston. Um, and uh, they saved his life. Now, fast forward to today, he's still alive. Uh, he's been in homes most of his life. Uh, he's never talked. He ended up being deaf and blind as a result of the loss of 20% of a, his brain tissue being damaged or dead. They removed it. Um, he cannot walk without assistance. I mean, he can walk on a flat floor straight ahead, but he doesn't have depth perception. He doesn't look down. He'll just trip over whatever's in his way. Um, he's got uh, a bunch of ticks, if you will. Like he, he won't doesn't like anything on his head or his arms, his sleeves. Uh, he'll roll up his sleeves, take jackets off and all that in the coldest winter days. Uh, he just doesn't like anything touching him. But uh, so he hasn't had much of a life. And he, at two years old, he, you know, we didn't know what kind of life he was going to have. Yeah. How could you? He, he crawled on his back um, when it became time to crawl. Um, but we never really, you know, you couldn't even get certain tests and everything done until he had developed to a certain stage in his progression. And Everything was so much different back then. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, I'm a selfish, self-centered addict through all this. I'm just living, living life. I'm old school. You know, that's the wife's job to do all this stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm woke yet. Obviously, I was misinformed by the misinformed. I was raised by, you know, World War II vet and, and a wife. We're all of the products of our generation. Exactly. So um, these, these are not excuses for my behavior, but they're reasons and factors. And I was just ignorant and selfish and... Um, you know, left that stuff to her, and she was doing a great job raising my four-year-old and all, but I'm still going to work, so I think I'm functioning. I'm, I'd always been in the computer industry. Thank you to the Marine Corps for training me in the computer field to that point. Um, so I started out as a computer operator and became a programmer, and now I'm out, and I'm in computer sales after, you know, progression of jobs. I, I was now out of the Marine Corps nine years at this time. And uh, so I always had good jobs. I had two jobs to, to pay for the first divorce for a while. And uh, so when I met this girl, she was a Coke user. I knew her brother since we were teenagers. And the whole family was addicts, basically. And he was a gambling addict along with me. And um, long story short, it was, you know, it was more a lustful, uh, you know, sexual drug-fueled re relationship. However, once she had got pregnant with our first child, she was able to shut it off. And between children, she turned it back on. And when she found out she was pregnant a second time, she turned it off. But Larry continued on with, without any bumps in the road, you know. But then I, you know, just before we met is when I met the pipe fitter. And I get into the free basin. Um, actually, 
she actually, we were dating when I was still living in the apartment I rented from him. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So I actually, he didn't even turn me on to the freebasing till we had, we rented a home in Randolph when we were living together. That's when I began the freebasing. Now, by that time, at least one son was born. I don't know if the second was. Second may or may not have been born by then, but it's right around that time. And the freebasing just really propelled my dissension. Um, and I, I would get off it for a while and go back to just snorting. You know what I mean? But the paranoia had sucked, uh, sunk in. I was were, no you getting, were you were you eating? Were you getting emaciated at all too? No, because I always drank beer to kind of you know keep the coke use. Yeah, uh, keep up the appearances. I hated pot, and every once in a while I'd smoke pot just to try to fall asleep. But eventually, I think I developed cocaine psychosis, where I was just afraid of everything and fearful. I no longer became a partier. Near the end of my using, I called the police to my home twice in the same night because I thought someone was in the basement. It's you like know, uh, Henry Hill with the, you know, and Goodfellas at the end of Goodfellas when he's looking at the helicopter following him mm-hmm. the entire yeah. time. That kind of psychosis, paranoia. For anybody that like doesn't understand what he means, just think of Goodfellas. That scene with Henry Hill at the end, watching that helicopter and being paranoid. That's mm-hmm. basically what <laughs> cocaine psychosis is. And he wasn't even freebasing. He was just snorting it the whole entire time. So it's even exponentially <laughs> worse for you. And at this stage, I was back to snorting again. But between between the house we rented and a house, the only house we ever bought and then sold, um, and I smoked away the profits from that. We made thirty grand on it in two years, which was a lot in the eighties. But um, anyway, I, I freebased at the house we owned, and I basically smoked that away. And when we moved to the house we were renting, at the time I got clean, at the uh, at the time of this story, I'm going to tell you. Um, I was back to just snorting and I called the police because I thought someone was after my stash. Basically, I was paranoid. I heard noises in the basement. They came. Um, you know, my, my wife didn't wake up during that. I told them to be quiet, blah, blah, blah. So like two hours later, I'm worse. And I called them again. I said, you must have missed something when you were here. You know, there's, there's still someone in my basement. Different crew of cops comes, but they know it's the second trip to the house. And one of them was a guy I played football with in high school. And um, after they went with guns drawn, at my insistence, there had to be someone in the house. They had their fucking guns drawn going through my house into the infant's room, into the wife's room, into my then four-year-old son's room. And um, Ed Corbett was his name. He pulled me aside right before they were going to leave. And he said, Hilsey, I don't know what the fuck you're on. He said, but you better get some sleep and don't call us again. You know, yeah. He gave a warning. And, yeah. Uh, you know, that's that. <laughs> I'm only <laughs> laughing because I don't resonate because I've never done it, but I was just talking to my sponsee recently who is um, so four, four months sober from meth for the first time since he was a teenager. He's in his 30s mm-hmm. now, 15 plus years, never been this sober in his life. And um, we were talking and he was telling me a story about how. He was freaking out on his fiance about how he could hear noises in their basement and how mm-hmm. he wanted to go down. He was scared. And the thing is, they, they live in a trailer. <laughs> there is no basement. <laughs> They're in a trailer. <laughs> I, 
she's recovering four years. She's four years sober, and she's like, dude, you're going to treatment. You need rehab again. <laughs> so I get that. I, I've heard that story of the people in the basement of the psychosis. <laughs> That's why I was laughing. I was just talking about that. It's funny. So, so I mean, it's not funny, but I mean, you know. February 22nd, 1987 was my son's fourth birthday. And that morning, you know, keep keep in mind, this using just persists. I either drink uh, at home and do coke, or I will stop at the local bar on the way home looking for coke, and more often than not find it. But when I didn't, I would just, I'd drink more than usual at the bar and come home late. So I barely see my wife, if ever. But, you know, I never leave the house or anything. We never had any any fights like that where either one of us would leave the house. Because I became so meek and mild due to my fear and paranoia. Like, I wasn't going to cause any kind of controversy and bring attention to myself. Yeah, that makes so, a lot um, of sense. Yeah, that, that, you know, I was just extremely fearful of being arrested and so on. So um, that morning, you know, we're having a little family party for the four-year-old. And uh, this wife, she was, she's a, you know, was a good, faithful human being, at least till this point, And um, a very good mother. She didn't drive. Um, she just never had her license. But anyway, um, she pulled me aside and she said, I need a favor from you today. I thought she was going to send me out, you know, for cake or some shit or whatever. And I said, what's that? What do you need, hon? And uh, she said, I don't want you to do what you do every other day today. And I knew exactly what she meant, you know, but I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, I don't want you in the bathroom all day or hiding in the basement all day. Or if you just have to run out and get something during the party, I don't want you gone all day, you know, because that was my behavior. So she said, you know, my family's asking questions and I'm tired of, you know, making up lies to answer them. And uh, so I just want you to be normal today. <laughs> that makes so much sense. The bathroom, the basement. That oh somebody needs bread I'll get it no there's four loaves here I got it <laughs> you know at the door <laughs> see in four easy. hours yeah yeah you know I get it like any excuse to like run an errand for this somebody this episode is sponsored by MJ's Progress Not Perfection Meeting Center Association we are in our meeting center where we do all these meetings for mental health and addiction. I can do this podcast anywhere. I can do this at home. I can do this in a closet. I can do this in a basement. It doesn't matter. All I need is somebody else to talk to about addiction and recovery. What I can't do from anywhere is help people with their addiction and their mental health problems. If you can help out, you know, we do have a Venmo. We have a Cash App. We have a PayPal. We have an address you can send a check to. And, you know, all the money that gets donated goes towards rent, goes towards keeping the lights on, and goes towards keeping the internet on. So please, you know, if you can get five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, it doesn't matter. Anything you can is so appreciated. And if you are a local business, if you're a national business, whatever, and you want to be a part of what we're doing, you know, you can reach out to me and we can talk about how you can be a sponsor. But I'll let you get back to the episode. Party. You're like, we're talking about the holidays now, too. You know, mm -hmm. during holiday parties, especially, you know, any excuse I could find. Like, oh, blah, blah, blah needs a ride from the, from the train station. I'll go get them. And then yeah. make a stop on the way there or, you know, have my guy. I used to have them do drive-bys if they could come to me as I am like, all right, I'm going out for a cigarette. No one come with me. I got to make a private phone call and then just like throw like money to it. Like, oh, they asked for directions. 
you know, mm-hmm. than going to the bathroom for 10 minutes. Like, yeah, I, <laughs> I get it, man. The holidays are rough. I mean, I'm glad now I can get through the holidays, you know, pretty easily, you know, when it comes to being around drinking and not be triggered, you know, mm-hmm. I, I can be around my brother and sister while they're enjoying some drinks for Thanksgiving and it not be like, Oh my God, I need to drink with it. I don't, I don't feel that anymore. And it's a lot to do with working the steps and working a good program and having faith in that, but we'll get to that too. So now she says that to you on that day, does Larry follow through with that request? He did. He complied. Um, I pretty much just drank a few beers that day. Um, which was, you know, that was like drinking water for me. And uh, the party was approximately 1 to 4 p.m., I think. And, you know, now cleanup's all over. And um, when it came time to put um, my older son to bed, I either had to read to him or watch one of his two uh, favorite videos, which were The Wizard of Oz and um, one we had taped off TV um, uh, on VHS, of uh, the Ewok adventures. He was into the, the Ewok movie. It was like an ABC primetime movie or some shit back yeah. then. So anyway, at uh, six o'clock, I get a phone call on a cordless phone, no cell phones. But, but, you know, that was a new invention at the time. Cordless phones in the house, were like, yay, big, big, big. <laughs> big and uh, it's from a guy. Keep in mind, I was 29. This guy was in his 40s. He was a gambler too. I, I, he was always at that bar I mentioned. And it, oh, it so was you were gambling I, too. Hmm? You were gambling at the time too. Oh yeah, I gambled just as long as I'd been drinking, pretty much. You know, oh, okay. I, did, I played poker for for change and money as young as ten or eleven, twelve, uh, with uncles and older yeah, cousins. Yeah, I mean, I knew you liked watching sports now, but I wasn't sure if you were in like, you know, if you bet back in the day, or you know what I mean. All of it. So, My dad yeah. was a. I didn't know he was a bookie until I was about 16. He had been arrested in what was called the Key Shop Raid on Mass Ave in Boston. It was the first uh, nationwide. Uh, actually, Walter Cronkite, Walter Cronkite did a thing which eventually became 60 Minutes, uh, the biography of a bookie. It was done in black and white, and it showed all over the country on a particular night, um, except everywhere but Massachusetts because it was still an open uh, federal crime case. Uh, didn't show till like it didn't air till like a year later in Massachusetts. But if you you wow. it, Walter Conkright chronicles a biography of a bookie, you will find it. And the opening scene is my dad. He got arrested in that raid. Yeah, I'll have uh, to check it out. Yeah, yeah. And you can find newspaper clippings. His name was Arthur Hiltz. Uh, he was one of six arrested. Uh, he didn't do time. He got probation. Two people did time, I guess. But he worked for this uh, bookmaker named Doc Sagansky, who was um, mentioned a lot in the book Black Mass, who was the first bookie to be shook down by Whitey Bulger. But uh, anyway, he was a a bookie most of his life. He stopped doing it, uh, you know, I think for a few years because he didn't begin doing it again until after my mother passed away. Okay. So anyhow. So, yeah, now now we're caught up. Now you're you're back to your your buddy you saw, right? That mm-hmm. gambled a lot. OK, about a m- yeah. couple of days he, later. We, we were only friends at that bar room. Um, I'd never been to his house. Um, like I would get him coke sometimes. Sometimes he would get me coke. Uh, oh, that's right. This would, is that night he, would, he called you. Yeah, at 6 p.m. He would um, 
he would call in bets that I would forward to my dad sometimes. And if I owed too much money to my dad or, or other bookies he was affiliated with, then I would call in bets to him, you know? Yeah. Um, so anyway, he calls and um, he turns out he, he, he lives less than half a mile from me. I had known that, but I'd never been there. And uh, he says, hey, trying to get a few guys together tonight, uh, play some poker, drink a few beers, and we'll get some eight balls. And um, I could not say no to that. Um, my wife's standing there, like across the room, listening to the call, you know. And um, I got the phone in my ear, and I'm, I'm making up the story as I go along. Like, he's, he's talking to me, and I'm like, oh, yeah, Joe, so you need help moving this evening? Got to be this evening? Yeah, I can bring the van. I, I have a fucking 1984 Plymouth Voyager, right? A little minivan. I'm gonna, yeah, I'll take the seats out and I'll help. I'll help. Yeah. You move. Oh, yeah. You can't move any day, any day, any other time. It has <laughs> to be tonight on a Saturday night. I got you, Joe, because that's normal moving hours is 9 p.m. on a Saturday. <laughs> exactly. Now, of course, my wife is, you know, she's naive, but she's not stupid. And yeah. the whole I'm talking. She's doing this. Like you she motherfucker. Already, you motherfucker. <laughs> and by the time I hung up, she just she just kind of gave the 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 sound of disgust <laughs> and she walked upstairs. So I got Well, she know, knew. She knew you, man. She's like, I'm not even gonna try. Exactly. He's gonna do what he's gonna do. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna let him know how I feel and then leave on that. Because he's not gonna yeah. give a shit anyway, because he doesn't care about anyone but himself anyway. That's right. So um, now I know I got to get my son to bed. You know, she knows she, that's the only game she would play there is, look, I'm not putting him to bed for you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can go. If, just you got to do your job, man. Exactly. Your now, job. Had I been out, of course, she put him to bed at seven. Right. But anyway, I'm trying to get him to bed early. So I ask him, you know, does he want to watch the Ewok adventure? Because I know it's only an hour and I can fast forward through certain parts and whatnot. Right. So. I dope fiend him in to watch the Ewok adventure. I put him to bed and off I go to this dude's house. Now, um, I, I walk into the room. It's just Joe, who I know, and a guy I've never met before. Can't even remember his first name, but that's it. It's just those two and me. I sit down at the table. They're having a discussion. They're both in their 40s. I'm 29. And um, the discussion is sort of like, one guy telling the other guy how the second wife sucks and the other guy saying his third wife sucks and his stepchildren suck. Like the business owner saying his customers suck. The other guy's saying his boss sucks. It's just all this everything sucks conversation, right? And it's like, I'm not even there. I'm not even in the room. You know, they yeah. kind of wave to me. They, you know, they don't get it. They shake, get up and shake hands and that's about it. Introduction and they continue on with their conversation. Uh, but Eventually, Joe says, there's beer in the fridge, and he points to the fridge. He slides me an eight ball, and then eventually they finish their conversation, and he starts dealing the cards. And after a couple hands of a poker, Joe looks at me like I got a you know, penis growing out of the side of my head or something. He gives me a real funny look. And in, in the meantime, there's either the Celtics or the Bruins are on in the background. It's February. It's winter sports time. I think it was Channel 38, so it was probably the Bruins. But every commercial break, there was a commercial for 1-800-COCAINE. If you've got a drug problem, call this number. That's what was on back then. Remember I said that's going to play into the story? 
That's right, yeah. Uh, it's That was going on then. It was the beginning of it. And I'd seen mm. those commercials for, commercials for months or years. And the only thought I ever had was if you call 1-800-COCAINE, maybe they'd hook you up with pure cocaine, or maybe they'd get you a legal drug dealer that would mail order to you or some, from another country or something. Or it's but probably I, the cops. The cops are waiting on the other end of the phone to come <laughs> out and get you. You just timed yourself out. Exactly. That was the other thing I thought in paranoia. Yeah. It was a trap. I can see that. Head up. So anyway, um, Joe looks at me, gives me that weird look, and he says, what the hell is wrong with you? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you haven't even touched your blow. And I don't know where this came from, but I, I paused just a couple seconds, and I said, I need help. I never uttered those words in my life about anything. You know, I you know, thought I was a tough guy, and I was a Marine, and I didn't have any feelings. I'd been shut down pretty much since my mother died and all that. And, um, you know, just burying my feelings. And, um, you know, I couldn't show emotion. I wasn't allowed to basically the way I was raised and the way that, you know, I was trained in the Marines. So um, the only emotion I could show was anger and sometimes laughter, but never true happiness or joy and uh, or sorrow. But I... Um, you know, that's what I said to him. And the two of them looked at each other and they pointed to the TV and they said, what about that fucking number? It's always on the commercials, right? So, I mean, we had it memorized, 1-800-COCAINE. We both, all three of us knew how to spell. They made it easy, especially yeah. that word. <laughs> yeah. And I called. I called them and they asked me, you know, what I had for insurance. I have Blue Cross Blue Shield because I always had the good computer jobs, even though I never held them for... The longest job I'd ever had in my life till I opened my own business was my three years in the Marine Corps. I couldn't hold the job longer than that. Um, so um, I called. They told me, you know, what I needed to do. I needed to enter a treatment center. They recommended one in Newport, Rhode Island. It no longer exists. It was called Edge Hill, Newport. It also had the nickname of being Betty Ford East. I had no idea where I was going and what was going to happen there, but um, that, you know, I, 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 I don't even remember if I did the Coke that night. I don't think I did because I felt pretty good in the morning. I got a, a semi-normal night's sleep, but I called my father at like six in the morning asking him for a ride to get me there by 9 a.m. because he, he didn't 100% know what was going on and, you know, I needed to tell him what was going on. So I killed two birds with one stone. And I'm sure he I mean, had an idea, right? You're talking to your dad all the time, like putting in numbers. Like he had to have had an idea of like you looking different or sounding different sometimes. Yeah, I think he did. Acting erratic or saying he thought it was shit. some, you know, over drinking or alcohol use. He was a little naive to how that drug would make you feel. That's um, true, though. I could see fathers. I mean, my dad did that with me when I told him I was going to rehab for pills. He thought it was for weed. You know, mm -hmm. just for what? Smoking? I was like, no, I don't really smoke as much as you think. It's really, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, I could totally see that now that I think about it. So anyway, he gives your, how does your wife take it, though, that you come home and you're like, hey, actually, we talked last night and. You know, I don't have a strong memory of that, but I believe, you know, she was, she was supportive. She, in other words, to the point where, like, well, no shit, you need help, you know, um. But she also, because she didn't drive, and now I'm leaving her completely alone with two children and no no transportation. She One wasn't disabled, yeah. 
that I was going to go away for what she thought, you know, initially it'd be for a few days when she found out it was four weeks. Um, you know, it leads to a whole nother part of the story. She ended up having an affair while I was in treatment. And uh, I got out of there with 45, I had 30 days clean when I got out of there. I was home two weeks. And um, she told me she was in love with the dude she had the affair with and wanted me to leave. I found out about the affair about two weeks into treatment. I had called home and uh, babysitter answered. And, you know, she never went out on her own. Uh, but her and her best friend, we're both having affairs. Um, the best friend had started long before my wife's affair started. Mine started while I was in treatment. But yeah, you know, I, I was never home. I wasn't much of a husband. Uh, I certainly wasn't uh, any fan of the bedroom when I was paranoid. Um, yeah, it's not like you were fulfilling her needs emotionally or physically. So why would she all. stick around at this at this point? Mm-hmm. Like what? Like, yeah, the house was, you know. Yeah, she had never had a job herself. She cleaned houses under the table, you know, for what little income she did have. Um, and, um, you know, she didn't have any options to leave me at that point. Um, and again, we, we hardly ever had those types of fights with, that would lead to a divorce. But we, you know, we had neglect. We certainly had neglect. We didn't have abuse, but we had neglect in the, the equation. And that kind of quietness is almost like eerie it's it's uncomfortable right it's especially if you're sober you're numbing it out the entire time so you're barely even seeing or feeling that kind of uncomfortable quietness because for you it's safety to be actually being quiet because when you're quiet you're not hearing the voices of paranoia anyway you prefer it to be silent and Mm -hmm. her on the other hand she wants you to talk and communicate be open be a husband intimate Mm -hmm love her and you're afraid to even open your mouth because then you're going to hear voices of the echoes of the whatnot (laughs) so it makes complete sense that you would go quiet and she would be like no 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 no. talk 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 please and then it goes that makes sense Mm -hmm. so i'm sure do you like understand at this point like you're like okay i did that oh i am when when i found out about it i mean at at first there was you know a little anger and but secondly there was just a lot of remorse for my behavior and, you know, went right to counselors with it. And, you know, they were pointing out all types of things to me that I needed to know. And one of them was that everything you just said, she was pretty much justified in having this affair. Like, why wouldn't she, um, based on the, again, not, not necessarily all the things I was doing, but the things I wasn't doing, wasn't doing in the marriage. Um, so fast forward, um, I, I call her, um, I let her know it's okay, you know, blah, blah, blah. I knew the guy. Um, he was, you know, my, my wife was my little brother's age, and so wasn't this guy. So he was, you know, an associate of my little brother's. They were never really close, but they played peewee football together and whatnot in Little League together. And, um, and his family was close with um, a branch of my family, my second cousin, she, um, their parents and all the kids were, were all close friends. But anyway, um, the the counselors reach out to her to set up a family counseling session before I'm discharged because they want to ensure that I've got a home to go home to. Otherwise, they're going to, you know, sober living was the new thing back then, but they were going to make some type of other arrangements for me to maybe go to further treatment to what they call a therapeutic community or a TSS or something like that. And uh, anyway, 
she, my older brother had to drive her down because she doesn't drive. He picked her up, brought her down for this family session, you know, all sorts of tears and hugs and openness. And she agreed to let me come home. And uh, I was warned that sometimes these codependent people, especially if they were addicts too, they don't like the newly clean and sober person. They feel they're kind of a threat to their own substance abuse. And she wasn't much of a drinker at all, but she did like to, uh, you know, go have a couple of drinks and do some coke when she didn't have the kids, when you know, I was, quote, babysitting at home. So now she could do this for the, the couple of weeks I had just got home. She was out doing that two or three nights a week. And turns out, you know, the, the place she headed off with the dude, it was his regular bar. It was a Chinese restaurant where my wife's best friend was a bartender. So... She was back at it. I didn't know about her best friend having the affair, but her husband was one of my close friends, and he eventually told me. And I put two and two together. The affair was still going on. She hadn't stopped. She was trying to give me a shot on the surface, but he wasn't letting up. Like, he still wanted her, you know? That makes sense. So, long story short, when you first get clean, I mean, you start feeling everything, right? And all the, the equipment starts working again, and I was just playing horny. And, I, you know, I, I had a newfound resurgence of love for my wife as opposed to just, you know, lust and a partner and all. And it was like puppy love all over again. I was head over heels for her, and I couldn't get enough of her. And, um, you know, we're, we're making love, and um, I'm on top of her, and she's looking up at me, and all of a sudden her eyes are filled with tears. And, you know, she's like not moving. It, it was horrible sex, if you will. And I said, uh, what's going on? And what's the matter? And she just cried and sobbed a little more. And she said, I'm in love with David and I want you to leave the house. And I, I was just shattered. My world was crushed. Um, and I left the house. And I stayed clean from that day, February 22nd, 1987, until sometime in 1996 when I picked up heroin. But between then and then, that's why I have a clean date. Uh, excuse me, I picked up in 1993. I got clean again in 1996. So in 93, uh, that's, okay, so 87, that's, you know, it's shot, obviously. You just had a lot of different life events happen all at <laughs> once with treatment. You come back, and now you're happy again, and then boom, you're out again. Mm -hmm. But you stay clean. Were you working a program? Because it sounds like you might have been working Okay, because you, you went right to your therapist. Nobody would have went right to their therapist unless they were already kind of bought in on a program. You know, well, I didn't therapists other than the counselors. That's you know, what I meant, counselors. Yeah, I meant treatment. But I did you reached out. I, I did reach out. I, I hired a family therapist to try to save the marriage because, you know, she, you know, she wanted to continue on with this lover. Um, I got advice from other people in recovery that, hey, you know, you're newly clean, you know, don't go through this alone. You should get outside help, et cetera. I was doing both fellowships, AA and NA, uh, as far as meetings go. But in this treatment center, um, I not, I've known for a long time that I got incredible treatment there, and I got a head start on recovery that a lot of people don't get. I learned things there about the disease of addiction. They, they treated from the disease concept. They did not provide any medically assisted treatment or anything at that time. Um, they provided minimal psych services, but they gave some. But they had this, this center was so thorough. Not only did you have 
groups three or four times a day with your peers. It was a peer recovery based uh, center. In other words, you I would tell that. a story after a week on the unit and you would be listening to other people's stories those first six days. And once you told your story, you became um, uh, you opened yourself to peer input Peers. and feedback. Yeah. And they told you what they thought your defects of character were and what you needed to work on and so on. And, you know, I was told at that time that what I will never forget, and that is that I was an egomaniac with an inferiority complex, you know. And I was told that by a self-described piss-your-pants street drunk named Dory who worked the combat zone until she was, you know, in her 50s and she got sober. She had no licenses, no degrees, no nothing. Yeah. She was just a bus and, you know, she, she knew how to call a spade a spade. Yeah. So I got to ask, because, like, there's a lot of people, even including myself, that, you know, you get five years. That's like, and especially when you're working a program, I know how dedicated you can be to like working something. It's a scary thing to think about somebody with a strong recovery having a bad relapse after almost six years of clean time. I was six and three quarter years by the time I picked up. And like yep. a true six-year-old, you're counting the quarters. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're six and three quarters. What happens at six and three quarters? I stopped doing in reverse order everything that I was taught in that treatment center and what I was taught in the two 12-step fellowships. So Textbook I was taught, relapse. Yeah, you know, I was taught right away to get clean and a day at a time, don't pick up. And how do I not pick up? I, I get some type of connection with a power greater than myself, whether that be some uh, spiritual or uh, religious deity, or it just be the fellowship of Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe in something greater than myself. And I ask that power to, uh, take, to remove the obsession to use and help keep me away from a drink, a drug, and a substitute for one day. I was taught to plan my day around a meeting and attend that meeting. And if I attend that meeting and I like the group, maybe eventually I join the group and I get active in the group. I was told that if I found someone whose recovery I found attractive, if they had what I wanted, not in a material or a physical sense, but they had the spirit and mentality and energy that I wanted, that I would ask that person to be my temporary sponsor. Um, I was told to, uh, if I had a successful day and I didn't pick up a drink, a drug, or a substitute, and in my case, or gamble, I used to pray for that too, because um, that would be a substitute, gambling, or shopping, or sex. Um, I, that I would uh, thank that same power that I prayed to in the morning and I had asked for help for another successful day, and I would go to sleep and with serenity in my head and heart, and I would wake up in the morning and repeat that process over again. I eventually would begin working steps with that sponsor. And uh, eventually I would get to the point where I could give back and I would sponsor other people and uh, pass it on. So fast forward, uh, at three years clean, I moved from Randolph to where I live now. For 31 years, I've been living in Cedarville, the southern part of Plymouth. And around that time, not only did I move because I wanted to buy a home, um, I, a couple months before that, I had uh, started shopping in this area because I took a job in Kingston, Mass., and I wanted to be a little closer to that. And it was a great job because I was offered a piece of the company. After a year, I would have a piece of the company. 
as the lead salesperson for this guy in the computer field. Long story short, things are going well there. I've got 20 grand put away in commissions. I put $20,000 down on this house that I live in. And um, I needed 40,000 to pass papers. My, my credit was horrible, horrible. And I was doing owner financing on a $100,000 home. So the, the 20 grand would be the normal for a bank. But for this owner financing, I needed 40 grand. And I was making the kind of money where I could make a commitment like that. But um, I'm now uh, 30 days from passing papers. Back then, it would be about 90 days was normal. It's not like today where you can pass so quick. Um, and, um, you know, it was a little longer, I think, because it was owner finance. And um, I'm owed more than 20000 in commissions. And uh, my boss hadn't paid me commissions in a few months for two reasons. One was... Um, he told me he wanted, you know, if I could defer it for a little bit, he wanted to kind of reinvest it in the company and he'd be able to pay me even a little more on the back end. And number two, um, you know, I, I've always had trouble saving and, you know, managing my finances. So it was like he was holding on to it for me, you know. Mm -hmm. Long story short, when I, I tell him I need the other 20 grand coming up in a month and um, like each day going by like he's kind of avoiding me and he's acting shady and so on and each week in my paycheck I'm waiting for my commission money you know and so I have a very small salary I would get weekly so finally I said George what's going on you know I I need my um my commissions I got to pass papers on that house and uh he said well unfortunately um I made a couple bad decisions and um you know, I've owed the IRS money for years and I had to pay them or they were going to, you know, put liens and levies on all the business bank accounts. He said, matter of fact, they did. And I had, you know, I had to pay him a certain amount to yeah, get. He those. wasn't reinvesting anything. He was getting as much bankroll as he could to take care of his IRS situation. So the business didn't get shut down. Exactly. Yeah. So he was an egomaniac for sure and not in recovery. And I, <laughs> I said, George, you've either got to come up with that money or I got to start my own company and I'll, I'll be a competitor to you instantly. And he was like a foot shorter than me and a real cocky little bastard. He poked his finger in my chest and he said, you know what, Larry, you go ahead and start your own business. He said, you will never be a, a, a you know, amount to anything without me. And uh, that's all I needed was that fuel. And I started a very successful business. It just skyrocketed. It was so good that not only did I come up with the 20000 to pass papers, I only had a – that owner was only going to finance me for two years. So, you know, I had to pay off that sixty grand in two years. Now, my monthly payment was only a grand. But I had to, you know, come up with balloons within the two years. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and then hopefully, you know, improve my credit and just obtain conventional financing. But it, I did so well with the business that I ended up paying off the house completely in cash within the two years. That's never, awesome. Never had to get the financing. Is that the house you're still in? No. No, no okay. That business since uh, 2001, I believe. Okay. But no, I'm in the recovery field now. I actually work for Gosnell. I'm a recovery coach currently. Oh, cool. Okay. And we'll get, and we'll catch up to, you know, where you are now. Cause what happened in 93? So cause you're running um, your business for three years now and it's doing well. You're in your own house outright. You don't have a payment on it by now. Oh yeah. Now I'm six years clean at this point. 
and had about five years clean. Keep in mind, about 45 miles to move, right? And all my regular meetings are back up in Randolph and the South Shore, Quincy, Brockton, Abington, Rockland, Wayne. I get it. Yep. I know where this is going. (laughs) Start a new job, new location. There's there's no NA down here. I'm doing mostly NA. By the time I had probably two years clean, I was switched to exclusively NA as opposed to an equal mix of AA and NA prior to that. And uh, so I never networked down here. I didn't reconnect. And I'm getting busier and busier as the success is happening. And I'm working 8, 10, 12, 14, 16 hour days eventually as the business grows. By 1994, five, where the business peaked, it was an $8 million a year business with 18 employees. And I had three locations. Wow. Um, So I started to phase things out in reverse order. The first thing I phased out was less meetings. Then it was less communication with other addicts. Then it was less communication with my sponsor. Then it was less communication with my higher power. And eventually it became not picking up anymore in the form of right here. I live on a lake on Great Herring Pond in Plymouth. I have a beach 98 feet from my house. And on that beach, we have a fire pit. And every Saturday back then, we were a new growing community. We'd have, uh, not every Saturday, one Saturday per month, we'd have a neighborhood cookout uh, in a little camp out down there. And um, one of my older neighbors, she's still alive. The husband died a few years ago. She's probably 82. So she's, you know, I'm 64. So she's 18 years older than me. They're quite the the drinking family, but they're not polluted drunk, so to speak. Um, They know how to throw a party. Exactly. Yeah, I they, get that. They were normal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they know how to throw a party and then not drink for another three months. Nah. They can get plastered. Well, you know what I mean. They can get plastered yeah. and then not drink again until next day yeah. at the very least, you know, and they had more on the weekends. So they were functioning alcoholics, in my opinion. But, you know, you we know how that goes. You're not an alcoholic unless you say you, you are. say you are. Yep. <laughs> so I'm not judging. I'm just no. uh, uh just sum them up who they were as people, but they would, they would offer me a beer every, every month, uh, you know, something else. And then one month they said to me, we know you don't drink, but we got you some wine coolers. And I said, but you know, that's alcohol. I can't have that. Right. And a month or two later, um, they, I, I had just had a, a big argument with my, uh, a woman I was engaged to and who I, and, uh, shared the house with, I eventually, Put her name on the deed. Had to buy her out for sixty grand when we split up um, years later in, in '96, right after I got clean. Um, but anyway, we were engaged, never got married, and um, I had a fight with her mother, and I felt horrible about it because her mother was just a sweet, you know, harmless human being, and I got mouthy, you know. I, I put her down, and uh, so. Anyway, I was feeling shitty about myself, and now the neighbor says, well, we know you don't drink, so we got you some old duels. And I took the old duels, and I drank it. And the next day, I knew I needed to get a white key tag, so I started drinking real beer. And during the six and three-quarter years, I hadn't been drinking all types of new beers that come out. There was this Lighthouse this and Corona Light and Bud Light and all these beers I'd never drank before. I was going to try them all. So that was working out for about five or six days. Then I started drinking mixed drinks again. 
And then by the 10th day, I got a call from a, a female that I grew up with that I also went through the big book step study process with. Um, and I had heard she had relapsed. She called me to tell me about a guy I used to sponsor, a mutual friend, had been found naked in his own bed in his apartment in the same complex I used to live in, coincidentally. Uh, dead. He had overdosed on speedballs. He was mixing cocaine and heroin. And uh, his name was Barry F. He owned a gas station in Holbrook, repair station and a gas station. And um, they were both Jewish. And um, she told me, you know, when Shiva was going to be and all that type of thing. And um, and she told me what Shiva was about. I, I'd never been to one. He said Shiva, yeah. I know yeah. about it. So she said, um, are you going to go? And I said, well, you know, once she gave me the information, I said, yeah, I'll be there. I said, by the way, you know, I heard, I heard that you relapsed. I'm sorry to hear that. But, you know, I had a motive. And she's like, yeah, I'm still fucked up. It's horrible. Like, you don't want to go there. And I said, no, I, I do want to go there. I, you know, she was a heroin addict. And I knew that about her. I said, I want to try dope. I always had a reservation about it. I could get into the reservation if we have time. But, um, you know, it was something I swore I never do, but I still had a reservation, right? And, what do you um, mean by reservation? Yeah, we have time. What do you mean by reservation? The reservation is a plan for the future based on certain circumstances. They tell you not to have reservations in recovery because someday you might show up for the reservation, right? Like making a reservation in a motel. All a reservation is is a placeholder, right? Like for something that's going to happen in the future. That's what a reservation is. So yeah, no, because that could that word means two different things, right? Technically, because mm -hmm. reservation could be I, I had a I was against it. I I always had reservations against it because exactly. I want to do coke. I wanted to stay up, and that brought me down. So like I, I could have taken that any way where you were heavily against it in the '80s, mm -hmm. and now like you want it. So that makes a lot more sense that that was your reservation that like it kind of stuck in your mind, especially when you get clean. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of tough, especially in those rooms. Cause you're hearing some raw stories to where you go. Well, if I ever relapse, that's my day. Yeah. You know, well, so I get that. Separating guys, there's a whole section on reservations because it's that important, uh, a, uh, an obstacle to our ongoing recovery. But, and I'm pretty sure it's in the AA literature, but I just can't tell you where. I haven't read it in years. But the um, here's how this went went down. Sometime between about six months clean and two years clean, I was at an NA meeting at Massasoit in Brockton. They held three to four meetings a week there. Actually, more than that. I think they had a noontime meeting five days a week, and they had two or three night meetings a week there. And um, there was a speaker came in there, and he was 40 years old at the time. And uh, or in his 40s. And the, the crux of the matter as it pertains to me, he was a self-described junkie who could who just came to a bottom because he got into cocaine. He said he had been doing heroin since he was a teenager because he was a Vietnam vet. Um, so probably 18 years old when he started doing heroin in Vietnam. And uh, he said he did cocaine for six months and it brought him to his knees. And what he said was, I don't know how you cocaine addicts do this. You coconuts is what he called us. He said, I don't know how you coconuts do it. He said, I've, I, I did heroin for over 20 years, and I always held the job. Uh, never had any, any trouble, 
you know, uh, with relationships or anything. My finances were always good. I could afford my habit. And he said, I get into cocaine and I lost my marriage, lost my job, um, losing my home, the whole bit. So Larry, being logical, did the math. I said, I did cocaine for eight years. I didn't lose all that shit. You know what I mean? I did lose the relationship. I did lose the house, but I didn't think I lost all that shit. Yeah. I didn't get brought to my knees for eight years. He got brought to his knees after six months. If he could do heroin for 20 plus years, how long could I do it for? So add that to the fact that now I got six figures in the bank at all times. Heroin's $4 a bag at that time. I'm like, my reservation was, if I start doing heroin, I could probably do it 20, 30 years, never go broke. Ain't going to be like cocaine and take me down in six months, you know? Exactly. So I what had, a, had a reservation. So as soon as heroin became available and I wasn't fearing relapsing because I'd already relapsed, yeah. it was like Donkey Kong. Like, So she said to me, Larry, I am not going to get you heroin. She said, I feel like John Belushi's girlfriend. I refuse to do it. You know, she really cared about me. She's a good human being, even though she was in relapse. But I just fucking nagged her and nagged her and nagged her. And she hooked me up with a contact. And I, I you know, in the beginning, I would go to Providence, which is 60 miles each way, once a month, then once a week. And then by the end, I was going once a day to see the man. And uh, I, I never did coke again. I quit smoking cigarettes at three years clean, May 22nd, 1990. I haven't had a cigarette or cocaine since I stopped doing each of them successively. I didn't have cocaine since February 22nd, 1987. As I speak today, I haven't had a cigarette since May 22nd, 1987. No, 90. May 22nd, 1990. Um, just, I was in this house like six weeks when I went to see the mad Russian to quit smoking. And uh, he's still alive, but he's no longer practicing, I guess. He closed down during COVID. But, uh, yeah. That, that's it's probably they, a good thing uh, that you had still quit smoking by the time you got into dope because you're, and when you're doing coke, you're smoking cigarettes, and but you're only really smoking cigarettes because you want to feel it with the drip, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's that drip, and then you want to smoke and feel the drip and everything. When and you're, were you? Can I ask if you got into shooting too, or were you just sniffing the entire time? I sniffed for two years, and I was shooting the last six months. I'll tell okay. you how that. Also, we'll I never yeah. shoot, right? So, and that was, but that's that's to the point of like what I'm saying is like the higher you were getting though on dope, you know, I've done this a million times with my cigarettes because I am still a smoker. I am working on quitting, but I'm still a smoker. That I would fall and hide holes everywhere. And I'm smoking, I started my opiates in 2007 when Fire Safe cigarettes came out in 2006. Mm -hmm. 1990s, Fire Safe cigarettes didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Now there's extra layer papered so that they go out right away. Back in your in 90s, if you were falling asleep with on dope and you were dope sick or whatever, falling asleep, passing out, nodding off, you were burning holes all mm -hmm. throughout your couch, body, or burning on your house. So it's actually a good thing that you didn't pick up smoking again because your wardrobe. I remember riding shorts filled with, with cigarette burns in rehab because all mm -hmm. the shorts I earned, or, like wore, or, like had, 
and I'm sure anybody that's been to rehab can relate. All your rehab clothes have holes in them from cigarette burns. <laughs> well, luckily for me, um, I, I was a fanatic, even smoking. I hated my ashtray in my car to have ashes in it. I would dump my ashtray, you know, like at every stop or dump it into a bag within the car all the time. Um, so even even in my, my sniffing Coke days, I would I would go from two packs a day I smoked to four if I was doing Coke. And I would have one in the ashtray that sometimes would never get smoked, but I'd be lighting the next one off the lit one. Hardly using my lighter, right? We call, that, monk, we call that monkey fucking. <laughs> I, I don't want to use the lighter fluid up on a cigarette. I wanted it for the pipe, right? Oh, that yeah, yeah, yeah. And back in those cars, they had the old-fashioned cigarette lighter. You push in, it pops out. You put it exactly. up against, and you're good to go. Now, what made you jump from snorting to shooting? Were you hanging out with somebody that was shooting? They did it in front of you, and you're like, how do I do that? Like, nope. what was it? To those, okay, keep in mind, here's a guy who was clean a long time, and he's a local businessman. Nobody, I wanted nobody to know about my using. Um, yeah, you're going down to Providence. You're going, yeah, I mean, you're not like you're going on a corner for your shit. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, neither one of us, me and my fiance, both eventually, once she heard I was doing it, she was, she was on her, even with the drinking, she kind of relapsed, you know, right behind me in, in, in succession, whatever I was doing, she was doing. And, um, so she was into the dope more than me once it got on. And, uh, but anyhow, all we knew was each other and I knew the contact. Eventually she got introduced to the contact cause I had to, you know, let have her make my runs sometimes. If you were um, at work and you needed something to be ready for you when you get home or something. She was my right-hand woman. She wasn't yeah. part business owner, but she ran the place as equally as I did. Um, you know, she owned part of the home, but she didn't own any of the business. But she signed all the checks and did all the banking and all that. Um, she eventually stole six figures from me near the end, but uh, that's a whole nother story. Yeah. But we're still friends today. Yeah. Um, she's a good woman, too. And um, But anyway... Um, this is how all that went down at about two years into using it was Christmas time going into new year's time, 1995. My dad was dying of cancer and I knew I needed to get clean and uh, I just couldn't, I didn't know how I wasn't going to go back into treatment. Um, so, and if, if I was, you know, I, I couldn't be there more than three, four days. And, um, you know, because my business would sink. So we planned to go see a gentleman in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, named Dr. Lance Guberman. You can look him up, Google. You him. know that's five miles from where I grew up. I can I can believe it. I know you got that heavy Jersey with that accent. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I grew up right outside of Cherry Hill. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, he ran this. He had this clinic there. He rented out a uh, veterinarian's uh, hospital weekends only. I think for one day, just Saturday or just Sunday or something. And uh, he would inject you with naltrexone while you were under anesthesia. And it would force all the uh, opioids off your receptors in 12 hours instead of four, you know, four days. So you could kick, basically. He would put you under anesthesia so -hmm. that you wouldn't go into withdrawals for the Vivitrol. Well, naltrexone. Now, it's called Vivitrol, naltrexone, whatever you want to. Mm -hmm. You can, it's the same difference. But still... Oh, that's interesting. And so it, it worked. Oh well, not really. <laughs> okay, okay. I was gonna say there's a reason they don't do it today, I guess. So, 
This guy was on, I don't know, Oprah or something. You'll see videos of him if you Google him. He's very controversial. Um, What's his name again? Lance Guberman, G-O-O-B-E-R-M-A-N, just like it sounds. Just like it uh, sounds. I don't know if he's dead or alive, but I looked him up, I don't know, it was recent as 10 years ago. To I was telling somebody else the same story, and I had to, had to prove he existed. <laughs> but anyway, um, I personally, I, I, I think like I died under anesthesia. I had the strangest dreams I've ever had. Um, I was like swimming through my own veins and my own body. Either that or that's what it's like to be dope sick. Cause this was the only time I was ever dope sick. Because you could afford to stay high the entire time. Exactly. And and I just refused to ever get sick, which is one reason I, I didn't, I wanted to get clean after 90 days of doing dope. And I ended up doing it two and a half years. In the beginning, that same girl, Sharon, she taught me how to chip so I wouldn't get a habit. Once I got beyond chipping and had a habit, I just, once my skin started crawling, I would get more. I did not want to get sick because I heard the horror stories of getting sick but I'd never been sick. Uh, otherwise, I'd learned that I could probably get through it. It's just like having the man flu, you know, like having a cold. Yeah, but, it's, yeah. I mean, I got I got through it without even subs. I mean, it wasn't dope. It was, you know, I was getting off like 8.30s a day to have it when I got into treatment. I was up to like 6, 8.30s a day for 10 years. And um, I, I kicked without subs in rehab because I knew that it wasn't going to literally kill me. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to make sure that I was under supervision with professionals. Mm-hmm. And um, the one thing I hated the most was restless legs. And mm. they told me gabapentin would take care of that. So I took GABA, you know, he, and and uh, melatonin. And mm-hmm. I refused the Suboxone. And I, I was good within. And I played horse basketball every day in between groups at my treatment center. And mm-hmm. I was good within five days, like, you know, feeling better. I had lost 20 pounds that week. I, mm-hmm. I felt amazing. Um, so I, I could see, you know, that it's it's rough, but it's possible. But, yeah, if you don't know it, you don't know it. I do. So, you know, you get you come back from Cherry Hill and. Well, here's what happened. We didn't get back from there yet. Um, they, The way he ran this clinic. You had to make your own hotel reservations locally and stay at a hotel. And he had volunteers from AA and NA that would just come monitor your recovery after this procedure. So I remember we booked a room at the Cherry Hill, Cherry Hill Hilton. Um, they took us in wheelchairs out of that place into vehicles or vans or something real cloudy. But I, I remember being in the wheelchair. I remember them wheeling me into the Hilton. Now we're up in our rooms. We had adjoining rooms because by this point, um, my fiance and I were no longer a couple. We were just using buddies. She had a new, new boyfriend. I just I I was alone. I was single. I stayed in the house. She moved in with her mother and I uh, was dating some other guy. Um, so anyway, we we had a pet sitter because we shared a dog uh, here at the house, which was a, a girl I'd grown up with, and. Um, we're, we're in that Hilton, and I'm puking up the green bile. I'd ne- never done that. Um, oh, oh, the bile? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I actually had my gallbladder out because I threw up so much bile over nine years because I was withdrawn so often. Wow. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, that kind of situation. I lost stomach tissue in my stomach right here for permanently um, where my gallbladder is. I have tissue missing. They saw in the endoscopy that they gave me that I'm missing tissue from all the bile that I got rid of over a decade of I would be on 
from driving from Lancaster to Philly four times a week, two hours each way for the last three years of my addiction. And I was throwing up bile into like bags on the Schuylkill Expressway in Philly because I was in traffic and rush hour getting rid of bile. Like it, it was just, you know, nuts. So I so you're throwing up bile for the first. So you're witch rolling basically is what you're telling me. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. that. That's what was going on. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm sick for the first time. She's in the adjoining room. She's just as sick. I was so weak, I literally couldn't walk to the bathroom without assistance and all that. And this, we're there for the full weekend. Um, it, we went there on a Saturday. I think it was a long weekend, so we, we were staying at the Hilton Saturday night, Sunday night, and um, Monday night into Tuesday morning. We're supposed to check out and leave. Now he gave us prescriptions that these aides. Um, would help us fill if if necessary, but otherwise, once we were able to leave the place, we could go to a pharmacy and fill them. But the only thing I remember there was prescriptions for there were a few things. Oh, there was um some sort of anti-nausea medicine, but there was also anti-diarrhea medicine normally for cancer patients that you had to inject into your fatty tissue, not mainline, in your butt cheek or your mm -hmm. thighs or whatever, and um, and a prescription for five needles each they're like diabetic type needles each we went and filled the prescriptions we now had needles in our hands for the first time we literally had to like walk like aiding each other leaning like this together to walk from the hotel to the vehicle and it was that difficult to walk to pharmacies and whatnot but we didn't even go to a, a local new jersey pharmacy we waited we went straight to providence Timed it, we were, pharmacies would be open, filled up prescriptions, and copped, and just began trying to shoot. I never knew how to properly mainline right till the end, thank God. Um, all right, I'm sure I'd be dead. She did, and she OD'd a couple times. So I fortunately have never had an overdose from heroin. Um, and of course, I got clean before she did, and I stayed clean a lot longer. I think she still drinks and whatnot, but um, she doesn't. She's not addicted to opiates anymore, anyway. Well, that's good because it went rampant up there for a while, especially around Cape May, Cape May, Cape Cod, um, and that whole area. I mean, Cape Cod had the whole documentary on HBO, you know, Heroin USA, all about in the mid 2000s how it ran rampant from Oxy. Yeah, insane. So, yeah. So, yeah how I began shooting and um, you know at, at the end uh, I wanted like a, I wanted to get clean for a long time but I knew if I if I could go into treatment and detox and not get sick I knew that I would be okay I wouldn't need long-term treatment uh, because I had proof that narcotics anonymous and alcoholics anonymous worked I just needed one day clean I knew that if I could get one day clean I could get two what, so, what's funny is not funny, but the, it's ironic almost. You literally, you know, you were dope sick driving back to Providence, mm -hmm. and you were in Cherry Hill, right next to Camden, New Jersey. <laughs> like you were at the Hilton, which is I think on thirty eight, and thirty eight leads you into Camden. You went north to Providence when you should have went south about two miles and hit any one of those sets because in the <laughs> mid nineties there was plenty of sets in Camden that you could have hit <laughs> like back then. So you, it's just, it's funny to me to think, cause I was right there at that time. I was, I was just about to discover alcohol for the first time as you were doing this. 
and you went, you know, 300 miles that way instead of 10 miles this way. And it's just, you know, I get that, though. I, I used to go. I used to live in New Bedford in 2011. I lived in New Bedford. And you'll probably the only one that's going to understand this. I would take the bus from New Bedford up to Boston, take a bus from Boston to New York City and then transfer from New York City to Philly and then get picked up in Philly and go to Jersey and then go to my doctor where I was doctor shopping, get my script filled and then take those buses all the way back again. I can relate. Yeah. We do. So we, we find a ways and means to get more, right? Yep. Yeah. So I, I get that whole entire the trip. Active and uh, resourceful people, addicts. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. okay. So now you start <laughs> injecting, but like. Yeah. I went to um. I went to High Point locally here, High Point Treatment Center. Uh, it was three days into the detox protocol there, and never felt sick or anything. It was so smooth. Um, I left AMA because I. I felt the need to get back to my business. Uh, you know, now I'm, I'm in the recovery field and we advise people not to go against medical advice for a zillion reasons. But, uh, you know, I, I still have my ego intact. And like I said, I did have proof um, that I that I could make it work. But I was also ready to go on a 17 day cross country train trip uh, with my children uh, would have been the second one of those. The first one I had done two years before early in the heroin use stages. Um, it was a similar 17 day trip, but to different destinations. The first one was to Yellowstone Park and uh, um, Mount Rushmore and a few other places. And the second one was uh, Grand Canyon, um, Vegas, Hollywood, San Diego, Mexico, and then back to uh, Arizona. I've done but that Montana and back trip before, but in a car with my family around this, in 1990, maybe it was 2002. I was like 15 or 14. Um, but we did that trip in our minivan out to Montana and back and hit all the sites along the way. And, you know, we've been to, I think, 39 states or 40 states as a family in our car together and including Canada, a bunch of provinces all the way up through the Hockey Hall of Fame. And I, I remember one year I saw the Baseball Hall of Fame, the Hockey Hall of Fame, and I went to a Phillies and Expos game in the Olympic Stadium in Montreal all on the same trip. And I ate lunch in the um, skyboxes in toronto you know mm -hmm. what i mean in that field back that's old stadium back in the day so that, I mean, that was a good trip that was in 96 actually i remember that was in 96. similar experiences all right on this um the 94 trip out west we stopped in chicago 48 hours on the way out and went and saw an astros cubs game at wrigley field uh jeff bagwell was first baseman for houston still then yes he was on the way back, we made a two-day stop in Denver. We just wanted to see different cities, you know, for the kids. And uh, the Rockies were a year old at that point. Nope. It, they uh, well, the Rockies. Yes, you're accurate about ninety-three that. was because their first season. Field wasn't built yet. No. We saw the Rockies play the Marlins in Mile, Mile High Mile Stadium. Mile High Stadium. Yep. And the Marlins, that was their first year as well. The Marlins and the Rockies came in at ninety-three, I believe, or ninety-two or ninety-three, ninety-four. But the Marlins and Rockies came in at the same time because I saw um, the Marlins and all like in 93, um, the year the Phillies went to the World Series and lost to the Blue Jays in game six. Joe Carter, first time I ever cried watching sports was that game. Um, I went to 23 games that year with my grandma, like at my pup up, my granddad. My granddad worked for the union that did the lights for the old vet. So I went to that old vet stadium. You know, I grew up eight minutes from door to door, my house to the vet. So we were there a lot. 
you know, to see Phillies games. I'm not really into seeing football live as much, but, you know, hockey and baseball live is my thing. That's, you know, what I've been growing up going to, whether it was AHL Phantoms or NHL Flyers or um, Phillies especially. I, mean, I remember my addiction started to pills two weeks before we won the World Series in 2008. Okay, so the first day that I put heroin in my, in my body was Joe Carter, Carter's home run against the Phillies. Son of a bitch, game six. 1993, right? Yep, it was. And then Randolph, when I had the dope in my hand, that game was on when I snorted my first line of heroin. Game six with Joe Carter. This episode is sponsored by MJ's Progress Not Perfection Meeting Center Association. We are in our meeting center where we do all these meetings for mental health and addiction. I can do this podcast anywhere. I can do this at home. I can do this in a closet. I can do this in a basement. It doesn't matter. All I need is somebody else to talk to about addiction and recovery. What I can't do from anywhere is help people with their addiction and their mental health problems. So if you can help out, you know, we do have a Venmo, we have a Cash App, we have a PayPal, we have an address you can send a check to. And, you know, all the money that gets donated goes towards rent, goes towards keeping the lights on, and goes towards keeping the internet on. So please, you know, if you can get five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, it doesn't matter. Anything you can is so appreciated. And if you are a local business, if you're a national business, whatever, and you want to be a part of what we're doing, you know, you can reach out to me and we can talk about how you can be a sponsor. But I'll let you get back to the episode. Wait, so you, you go into treatment, you knew you'll only need it one day. And if you got one mm-hmm. day, you can get rolling. So right. you get you get into this place. How is it the first few days of like kicking? Uh, honestly, it was, it was, it was boring. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have a lot of action. Thank God, you know, there was no internet or anything really to speak of then. I mean, it was in its infancy. So I was still a reader and I read and of course went to all the groups that are in there. Um, and you know, I knew the buzzwords. I knew how to, uh, to say the right things for the, the recovery aides and counselors and staff to, you know, um, sell them on the fact that I, you know, I was going to do the right thing, I guess. And, uh, I, I tried to remember that I don't have all the answers. I didn't, I didn't play counselor or sponsor, but because I had some experience and success before I knew that if, if, you know, if I went back out there, um, you know, with, without any cravings in my pocket, so to speak, um, I'd be okay. And it turned out, you know, I was cause here I am 25 years, four months later, um, not saying, you know, like I could have bet on that or anything, but uh, like I, I knew how to have some success. Um, now, I, I've always wondered about this next part is talk about, you know, positive things to do in recovery, right? Because we're always looking for things to do in recovery. Now, we're going to kind of shoot back to where we started at and we met and you're around 10 years clean. Mm-hmm. And I remember you were taking all kinds of classes. Like, oh yeah, you were like, I remember seeing you in a philosophy class with me. I think, and then mm-hmm. I would see you like in intro to like business, and I would see you in, you know what <laughs> I mean? Like, you were all over the place. And like I was because it was my first time in college. I was trying to figure out, but here mm-hmm. you are, and you know you're you had your own business, mm-hmm. and you're going to school. And I'm like, what is this guy doing? You know what I mean? Like, why is he even here? Like, I just, I want to be done with this. I just got done high school. Like, I'm tired of school. Why is he here? What brought you back and when did you go back and how long did you stay for? All right. 
So here's the education history. I was an AB student uh, till junior high. Junior high is about when I started my using. And I got introduced to algebra and new types of science and uh, foreign languages in junior high. And I just began struggling in education all around. Fast forward to 11th grade. That's the year my mother dies. That's the year I had the uh, head-on collision. I, I was skipping school like crazy. I was either late or tardy 100 days up to the point of the school year in March. There's only, uh, I think, 180. 180, school. and that's through June, a regular year. Right. So it was like 100 out of 130. I was either absent or tired. But these letters are going home to my dad, and he's not home. He's working. He's grieving my mother's death, you know? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I'm intercepting these letters. Next thing you know, I'm kept back. The following year, I got kicked out of school in March, coincidentally. So to further on the, uh, the education history, I get kicked out of school um, I get expelled for drinking in the parking lot at 10 a.m. And also in March of what should have been my senior year, it's my second time around in the 11th grade because of the uh, being absent and tardy those 100 days. Yeah. So I'm kicked out of high school. I go down. And instead of telling the old man I'm kicked out of high school, I sign up for the Marines at 17 at this point on delayed entry so that I'll be 18 when I go. So my father wouldn't have to sign till later. And um, so come around um, May of that year, he finally gets wind that I'm not going to school. And he asked me what happened. And uh, I told him, I said, well, I got good news and I got bad news. He said, what's, what's the good news? I said, I joined the Corps. He said, I don't give a fuck about the bad news. And, but, you know, it was that I had gotten kicked out of school. But anyway, um, so I go into Marines. I get a GED while I'm in there. Uh, so I have no high school diploma. When I get out of the Marines, I got the GI Bill. I started going to Quincy Junior College for computers and business at that time. Um, one of the business courses I took was business law. So it got me introduced in law. And that that was business law made it possible for me to even open a business. You know, I had none of that teaching at all in my life. And I never owned a business till the day I started the business. And I was forced into that, essentially, you know, to, to basically buy my home. Yeah. So, you know, being a good addict and being adaptive and being resourceful, I, I just kind of kept uh, going with education. But now backtrack to 79 is when I started in Quincy College. I had 27 credits, I believe. And I took a spring break until 2006, as far as education goes, from 79 to 06. So I went back to Quincy in 06 to finish up uh, an associate's degree in something. Yeah, you know what I mean? Um, and, but, so I had a lot of business credits. I had a lot of computer credits. And I, I said, well, I really like the business law. I'm going to go for a two-year law degree. So I ended up with about like 75 credits at Quincy College. But I, I graduated with a, uh, a, a, an associate's in legal studies, which is a slight notch above a paralegal certificate. So I took that and rolled it over immediately into Curry College. Um, I wanted to be a, uh, a drug and alcohol counselor. So I got a little bad information and advice on what courses to take and what degree to go for. And I ended up with a uh, bachelor's in psychology out of Curry. But by the time I was close to the end of that, you know, it was revealed to me that I should probably, you know, get um, more human services courses and, you know, try to become an LICSW if I wanted to be a counselor. Um, 
I applied for a couple jobs in the counseling field and didn't get them because they wanted a different degree. And so I just got frustrated with it. And I, I just kind of kept doing odd jobs, uh, self-employed, you know, doing Uber when it started, um, driving for Autopad International, just doing dumbass jobs and, and then selling old computer shit for my business on eBay and Amazon to supplement my income and all. Um, I got a VA disability for getting stabbed up and all that because it happened on active duty. So, you know, I always had a little bit of income. And, um, yeah, so back to the education. In 2013, uh, they had this new part of the GI Bill called vocational rehabilitation. And I went and took some more courses and got a LADAC 1 certificate from them, a LADAC 2 certificate, and a human services certificate. Um, and then eventually I took the recovery coaching courses. So I've got a shitload of paper that supports, you know, my 25 years of uh, being clean and sober. Um, and I like to think that, you know, I know it from the street side. I know it from the educational side. I know it from, you know, the living it side. And I know it from a lot of teachers that come before me. You know, I, I didn't invent any of this stuff. I've just taken – the only thing I've done right for 25 years and four months is take suggestions. Um, and and apply them. I don't just like think about it and and uh, you know nod my head like you're doing right yeah. now. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. You know what I'm saying though? Yeah, and, oh yeah. In yeah, a you... disparaging way. In other words, no, I, yeah, but I, no, I because be I've, I've gotten those nods. I've gotten those nods. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> when you're talking to a sponsee and you're like, this is falling on deaf ears. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've gotten but those. My nods. point is, I, I was the guy that would just nod. And and you would get the you could make the assumption that I was going to go apply this shit that I was nodding about, but I wouldn't. Yeah, you know what I mean. So that's why I say that. Um, that makes sense. But yeah, I um, I just that that's all I've done. I take no credit for anything, uh, including staying clean. Uh, the thing I take credit for is believing in a power greater than myself. That's the the only. That was the whole key. I always thought I've said this since the eighties that. The most important principle that I learned in recovery is open-mindedness because it opens the door to every other principle for me to believe yeah. in. Yep. And um, that, that's the only thing I can take credit for is I put my ego aside and I decided to be open-minded and listen to other people. And then, and then, you know, of course, over the years, it's up to me to apply what I've learned on a daily basis. And, it's so uh, important to it. It was, and it still is. It is, but it was so important to me to have a counselor. And well, pretty much, he was a therapist, right? I had three different therapists in rehab, like all at the same time, because I got obsessed with fixing myself. So I was mm -hmm. talking to all these people, and one of them was really book smart, and one of them was really book smart, but also was my age, and they would get my references. And they were both female, which was easy for me to open up to females over men because of I wasn't supposed to cry or show emotion. I could be vulnerable with women already because I wasn't my mom. So it was easy for me to be vulnerable with these, you know, treat with the therapist. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I realized that they didn't understand the drug part. So mm -hmm. I found a therapist within our network that would go do um, some of our groups. And I was like, can I talk to you like as a therapist? Just one on one also. And he was like, well, I don't have time for a new patient, but we can have talks if that makes sense over a cigarette or something like that, because mm -hmm. he was a therapist who was also in recovery seven years. 
and mm-hmm. he was from New Jersey, and we were in rehab in California. So he could really understand me from the attic point of view with the book side of it and the location side of it, which was mm-hmm. all really important to me because my addiction was rooted out in New Jersey. New, you know what I mean? Like, I don't blame New Jersey because I was still getting high in Massachusetts. You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> so, but Wherever still. Wherever I go, there I am. Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, I went to North Carolina, and the weirdest thing was I went with me, and so did my drinking and using. And ironically, that's where I got into Coke was in North Carolina because I could get that easier. I could get pills. So mm-hmm. I got really in a blow that year. Um, so what is the biggest thing, like, you tell sponsees this time of year, like, you know, the holidays when, you know, you said it yourself about, you know, relapsing around this time of year, using this time of year, like, what is it that you're telling people that are struggling? Because, I mean, the, the overdose and the relapse rates spike a third, 33% this time of year. Mm-hmm. And this year in particular, uh, May, t- April 2020, no, May 2020 to April 2021, we went over 100,000 overdose deaths for the first time ever. I think the high before that was 75,000 overdose deaths. That it, it was um, March to March, a year over year, and then April to April was just released, and that was 100,000 also. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's oh, and what be, I tell and be, people is what I learned back in 1987 in Edgehill is the following concept they taught me. They said, you know, you're gonna say to yourself, how do I stay away from alcohol when there's a bar room on every corner and on the opposite corner there's a package store, and you're gonna say, you know, how do you stay away from the drug dealer because there's one of those on every corner, but it isn't society that needs to change. They told us it's us that needs to change. In other words, we if, if physical things are going to trigger us, uh, you know, like a friend's using or a relative's using, then we're never going to stay clean even a day. So it's us that needs to change, right? And I consider the Swiss Army knife of recovery to be the serenity prayer, right? And um, this is how I break that serenity prayer down. Number one, my sponsor told me to get a dictionary. It was the second most important book to the big book and eventually the NA recovery text when I when I got clean. Because I needed to know the definitions of these words and the concepts and the principles and the steps and, uh, and what people were sharing. So it's God, and God can be an acronym for good orderly direction, a group of druggies, right? Or it can just be, you know, any anything that I believe in, the power of the universe. But we just call it God because it's short and it's three letters and it's a common word and we use it in our vocabulary all day right so say god grant me the serenity what's serenity that's peace of mind so grant me the peace of mind to accept the things i cannot change what's that that's everything on earth weather bad drivers ill health people dying my dog just died october 31st halloween this year accepting the things i cannot change which is everything except for me Courage to change the things I can. I need courage to change me, the way that I react, the way that I behave, the way that I respond to bad weather, to people dying, to bad drivers. That's the only thing I can change. So that serenity prayer, you know, if you're at Thanksgiving dinner and they pop the bottle of wine, I tell newcomers and sponsees to repeatedly say the serenity prayer because it's them that needs to change. They can't stop their brother from drinking or their parent from smoking or whatever the the case may be. They can only ask that power greater than themselves, you know, to to take away the obsession for a drink, a drug, or a substitute, just like I learned back in 1987. If they say the serenity prayer over, you know, whatever it is that's getting them anxious, uh, it might not be the substance. It might be someone else's behavior. You know, they're, they're asking a power that they hopefully believe in strongly 
to relieve, to give them peace of mind, to just calmly say, look, it's me that needs to change. It's not their problem. Um, I know personally, I've never been walking down the street and got hit with a blow dart full of dope. You know what I mean? I make a choice. I put it in my body. No one's ever held me down with a funnel and poured, uh, you know, Bud Light down my throat. Like, yeah, I that's nice to put it in my body. It's something it's, it's an N.A. thing, too, is that choice. That's definitely something talked about a lot in N.A. Because I go to I go to both N.A. and A. We talked about it. And um, I remember early on the first two months, I had a guy in my sober living. He ran my sober. He was my manager of the sober living, basically. But he was 18 months clean from meth at this point. And um, but in other rooms for 20 years kind of thing. And he always said to me, like, J.D., today we have the choice. We have the power of the choice. You know, we have the choice not to use. But the day we do use again is the day we lose that choice until we decide to give it up again. And that's the one thing you have to always keep in mind is today you have a choice, but tomorrow you might not. And he relapsed, man. Um, I was right around 90 days, and he was missing all of a sudden. And Mm. he had shot up on some meth and went right back into treatment. And I saw him at our NA meeting in Santa Monica, our usual Thursday that we would go to. And um, not together, but we would both be there. It's a huge meet. It still is one of the biggest NA meetings in Santa Monica. Um, mm-hmm. Like, they pay their rent for the year by May kind of meeting. You know what I mean? Like, wild. And mm-hmm. um, But amazing recovery there. And um, I, I was told, just because he relapsed doesn't mean that his advice wasn't bad. It just means he stopped listening to his advice. You stopped applying it. Yeah, it doesn't mean you don't – doesn't mean just because he relapsed, his advice – it was bad and you should drop it and not take his advice anymore because his advice was probably really good. The problem was he forgot to listen to himself in that instance. And that's what happened. And that's exactly what I did. And I didn't let it affect me. I used it as a lesson and I, and I didn't want it to like, I wanted to get through that. Cause that was the first person that I saw like close to me that had some sobriety that I didn't think would ever lose it, lose it kind of thing. And I wanted to hold strong as a point to show myself this is not going to be the first time this is going to happen. You know, this is going to happen. People, let's say in my position with a little time, you know, we we tell other people, don't put us on a pedestal. You know, we're human. And we're kind of advised that in a general way uh, when we first come in to not put other people on pedestals because they're all human. And, uh, that's why your higher power should not be another human being. It could be a group of human beings, like the fellowship, like I said. But yeah. one human being being your higher power. I've heard people say my sponsor is my higher power, and that's very dangerous. That's you know. Hey, what about Bill Murray? Who? What about Bill Murray as your higher power? That's mine. <laughs> <laughs> that's no joke, man. That's, that that's that's my higher power right there. Yeah, he ha, you know he has some amazing zen, and I love the way he lives his life. So, I, I chose to call my higher power Bill Murray, and then I had my fame my artist friend paint that for me as a commission last year because I knew I was going to have a podcast studio eventually, and I wanted it behind me. Um, so it was I one of the first. Bill, but I would never choose him as a higher. Power. No, it was just something that you know. One night I r- watched a documentary about him, and they talked about how he lives his life very zen like. And mm-hmm. how he never wants to be the center of attention. He just wants to live and not be bothered and just want to be part of. He actually has a place in the Cape, or on the Cape, I should say, on the Cape, um, where he lives most of the time. You know, he lives in there and Charleston, South Carolina, most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, I love Bill Murray. <laughs> but anyway, um, you, you reminded me of something, and it's your position. Now, people in your position that work in recovery, 
do you find it important to maybe check out Al-Anon or Naranon? I'm supposed to be actually, I, I've been to both before, but I'm talking way back in the 80s and 90s. But I was supposed to recently attend a Sunday morning um, Al-Anon meeting because I run a family support group for my current employer every Tuesday night. Um, I'll be there in Centerville, Mass tonight from uh, 6 to 7.30. So, yeah, um, that that is, you know, something that's suggested to me. And I, I um, in staying open-minded, I, refu- I refuse nothing. In other words, a suggestion... Yeah. My way it goes in the memory bank. Um, I've attended refuge recovery meetings. I've attended smart recovery meetings. Um, you know, Al-Anon's just up next. It's just a matter of both convenience, schedule, inconvenience, and so on. That well, they the, have. The reason I ask, the reason I ask, and for people listening or watching, the reason I ask is because people like you know him and I that we where we also not just we are in recovery. We work with people actively in that are in addiction still to try to hope someday they get recovery. So Mm -hmm. technically we have addicts in our lives that we're trying to help, but also not trying to cross any lines of enabling too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why I find that when you get some time and you start working in the recovery field, it's important to check out Alnon or Naranon because (laughs) it'll give you another place where you can maybe have some refuge from, the trauma that you deal with in a professional basis where it's real life, not just work. You know, this is real life stop, real life stuff happening as your career, mm-hmm. basically. So it can yep. be scary to be detrimental to our program. I've had to wear a lot of hats over the years between just between the two fellowships and of course now professionally, but I completely understand that the, the differences or lack of differences in all of this. In other words, when I'm at an AA meeting, I identify myself as an alcoholic. When I'm at an NA meeting, I identify myself as an addict. I never identify myself as an addict and an alcoholic. And the reason being is I believe it's the same exact disease, just has a different label. I've been through the big book step study process and it deals with alcoholism. It doesn't deal with alcohol. It deals with alcoholism and alcoholism does not come in a bottle. All right. Addiction does not have to be a substance. I've known people commit suicide over gambling addictions. I know people that are in jail over sexual addictions. Um, Addiction plays a role in 88 percent of incarcerations in America. So I know back to like, you know, we're talking about the overdose deaths. The fentanyl is out there killing tons of people and people want to talk about, well, the drugs ain't like they used to. Well, they're not. The drugs are different. But you know what? The solution has not changed since the 20s when uh, Bill and Bob created the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Narcotics Anonymous adopted those 12 steps with Alcoholics Anonymous permission in 1953. And, you know, their steps deal with addiction. It's, it's not cocaine and, anonymous. Not yeah, heroin people, anonymous. yeah, I always say Narcotic to everybody, you know, like, what's the all the normies? What do they think the first step is, Larry? If you're a normie, what do they tell you the first step is? Admitting it, admitting it's the first step. Mm -hmm. And really, they forget that the most crucial part of that first step is after that semicolon. Right. Yeah. That unmanageability. Mm -hmm. And I'm powerless. And Mm. because you can take that word alcohol and it's proven that you can interchange it with whatever is making your life unmanageable and Mm -hmm. do the rest of the steps on. I've had a sponsee with more time than me that we helped them get over an X by putting her name in there instead of alcohol. Oh, I had to do the same thing with that that 45-day wife that gave me the boot. 
Yeah. Many of my prayers every day. Keep me, it used to be keep me away from a drink, a substitute, a, a drink, a drug, a substitute, or Darlene. That was my prayers. I swear so to God. How many, how many times <laughs> did, now have you been married? You, did you get married recently? I got married um, 2017. 20, I thought it was in the last few years. It was right, yeah, okay. So is that your yeah, first been marriage? Since 2013. Uh, so we've been together eight years. We've been married four. Now, was that your first, like, serious relationship, really? Like, serious, serious since getting clean? No. I did go. I went 25 years uh, without living with anyone, without living with someone else. I had some long-term relationships. But I, I you know, my mother said, don't get uh, married till you're 25. I was married and divorced twice before I was 25. Yeah. So 25 years without uh, being married and or living with anyone. So this, this, the last person I lived with was my running partner, the one that I split with in 96. Uh, I bought her out of the house that year and she was the last one to ever live here um, until my current wife moved in in uh, June of 2015. She moved in after about a year and a half, a healthy dating and all. Mm -hmm. Well, but, that's you know, great. Yeah. She probably would have moved in sooner, but uh, she was, you know, a little hesitant. She was bringing seven and 10 year old sons with her and had just gone through a very nasty divorce with her ex. Um, so, yeah, um, we were both married and divorced three times, coincidentally. And oh, look uh, at that. Yeah. But hey, man, you know, I, I'm so glad we got to talk, Larry, today, because like there's a lot I didn't know about. You know what I mean? Like. Like I said, we would get to we talk here and there. I see you post or you see me post, but like actually sit down, like ask questions and talk. You know what I mean? And get to know each other. I appreciate you know opening up and talking the way you did because it's important to know like somebody that can have a few years of good recovery can still have a really bad relapse. Oh yeah. But, but it doesn't mean you can't get a day again and then two days again and then twenty five years. You know. <laughs> I tell you, there's a book in Narcotics Anonymous called Living Clean, uh, and there's a chapter in there on, uh, you know, on character defects and whatnot, and what it can do to anyone, regardless of uh, their length of clean time, if they're not taking care of their character defects and their shortcomings. And it talks about a guy with exactly 25 years, uh, you know, going through a nasty divorce, and he relapses and he loses his house, he loses his clean time, he loses his business. And and all these such things, because we're not exempt. You know, everyone gets their turn, whether it be a good thing. You have your you know turn at the good times and you get your turn at the, the hell. It happens in recovery, regardless of how much step work you've done or how much clean time you've had. But if you've done all that step work, you're prepared uh, for all the hell that's going to come your way. And you probably won't relapse if you've done all the step work. But uh, if you haven't, and the hell comes your way, you're probably going to re you're going to relapse. Whether the hell is a failed business, the death of a child, the death of a parent, um, you know, your own health failing, whatever yeah. you know, new bottom it is that's thrown your way, um, you got to have the tools. And yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, last, I had so many powerful people cross my path, and uh, you know, help me to just become the human being that I am today. You know. Yeah, I don't think I would have been able to get through my wife being diagnosed with MS 
you know what I mean, a month into <laughs> opening this business. You know, we opened this in July officially. We started this meeting center that we have here in, in PA um, this where we do, you know, trauma meetings, LGBTQ, NA, AA meetings and everything, meditation. And we started it back in July with our stimulus money. And then next month later, she gets diagnosed with MS. My God. And she can't walk anymore. You know, she can't walk unless she has a walker or a cane. Um, and we live on a second story apartment, you know, and it's been, we're stuck there right now for the time being. So, you know, it is what it is, you know, but without the steps, I would have completely fell off. I would have been drinking by now. I would have been using by now. Like old JD never would have been able to deal with any kind of thing like this. Mm-hmm. And I say deal with because that's how old JD was. But now working a program, I know how to live with this. I know that it's not going to change and there's nothing I did to cause it. And there's nothing I can do to fix it. All mm-hmm. I can do is just try to find solutions to make each of our lives easier that day. I'm mm-hmm. not going to be concerned with what tomorrow is going to bring because MS is unpredictable. She could have a great day, a bad day. All mm-hmm. I can do is control what I can control today. You know, like I lived my addiction one day at a time and I lived my recovery one day at a time. My mm-hmm. addiction, if I got high, like you said at the end about with your dope use, right? You were going every day because oh, that yeah. means you were going on Monday and then you were getting high throughout Monday. And you said, you know what? I'll just go again tomorrow. I'm going to use up the rest of today. And you <laughs> got high. That tomorrow is Larry's problem. That's Larry's tomorrow problem. I'm going to yep. get high tonight. And so I was living one day at a time then. And it just I was living for different things. Now I'm living for different reasons, too. So. Good. You are too, man. You're proof of that. Your life is proof of that now. I mean, you're always going to Patriots games or Bruins or Red Sox. You're always going to fun stuff, traveling, and you're living your life, man. You're giving back, and you're of service. Thank you for your service, by the way. And you People usually say that to you for the Marines and being a vet, but I'm mm-hmm. saying it to you this time also because of what you're doing. Not only are you sponsoring, you're you're working in that. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're living your life by it, and that's it's an incredible thing to see, man. Like, it's like inspirational for me what i would want to do as i continue doing this thank mm-hmm. you i love my job i love my life i love my country and i love my fellow addicts you know uh, i say it all the time like if i'm on a h&i commitment or you know i worked at the G- detox at gosnell for a while running groups and whatnot too and i open every meeting with you know i'm even as a recovery coach i have to give a presentation every thursday about what we're all about and I tell them that, that I'm an addict just like you, and I'm no better, no worse than you. The only difference between you and me is I have more clean time. And I, the only reason I know that is because you're in treatment. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. You know I mean? But yeah. the other day, we're sitting down at a diner. We don't know how much clean time we have unless we pull out our key tags, and I throw a silver one on there. It says 18 months. Mm-hmm. Color so. duck, and stay. Yeah, that's yeah. what I just got this fresh one a couple months ago. Beautiful. Yeah. Give gray, stick and stay. <laughs> locked up at South Bay, we say around here. <laughs> yeah, I used to go up to that Best Buy when they were building it to help them. I helped them grand open that Best Buy in 2007, um, actually, because I when we were work, when we were going to school together in 2007, I was also working at UPS down by you. UPS, yep, I was driving from Carver or Cava, as you guys would say it. <laughs> <laughs> to, to Sagamore at, to do the 4 to 8.30 a.m. shift 
Then I would drive a half an hour back to Carver, get a shower, and drive a half an hour to Kingston, CVS, exit 10 off of 3, get done there, and then I would go to class from 6 to 9 at night. Mm-hmm. That was my day, Monday through Friday, was UPS 4 to 8.30, CVS 10 to 4, class with you 6 to 9. That was Monday through Thursday, and then class 8 to 12.30 on Saturdays. And that was my week, and I had straight A's, and it was, you know, I was I was drinking, but not drugging. And then eventually, I wanted to drink more, and I was like, I'm done with school. I can make enough money now, breaking, working at Best Buy. I'm moving to Jersey on my own, and I'm getting my own place and going to party it up. And then 22 rolls around, and drinking's no more good anymore, and there are pills, and it's a wrap. <laughs> it is. It was done That's- over from there. Oh, they're on Quaker uh, Meeting House Road. is two and a half miles from my house. That's how oh, really? Yeah. But I, I'm just <laughs> glad that you're doing what you're doing today. I'm glad I was able to find you again and get in contact with you because it took me about 12 hours of, like, off and on searching on Facebook to find you again. So, <laughs> but I was determined to find you because I right. knew that you had a story to tell, and I'm so glad that we got to sit down and talk the way you did, man. Um, a lot of I hate to say old timers, but you're an old timer and a lot of a lot of old timers don't get as candid with their war stories as you did. So I appreciate it. So, again, keep doing what you're doing. Have a great Thanksgiving, man. And I'll be in touch soon. You too. Peace and love, my brother. All right. See you, buddy. Have a good one. Great holiday. Peace.